it, let's talk. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Talk About It. I'm your host, Perea, and every episode I bring on a friend so we can talk honestly about our own experiences in order to erase the stigma around mental health and therapy. On today's episode, I talk to my friend Jay Lee about her experiences being both biracial and queer. We talk about how this has affected her life, whether it was by being bullied, fetishized, or invalidated, and also how it affects her career as an actor. And before we get started, I just want to do a little self-promo and remind you guys to please like, follow, and subscribe if you'd like to show your support of this podcast. You can also follow it on Instagram at talkaboutit.pod and on Twitter at talkaboutit underscore pod. Now that that's all covered, let's get to the episode. How's it going? Hey, Priya. How's it going? Hi. How's it going? Thanks for having me. You're welcome. (laughs) Hi, Jay Lee. Hi. This is... Hi, Priya. Oh, hi. (laughs) It's just going to be three minutes of us going hi back and forth. Hi. Um, well, this is another episode of the podcast, Talk About It. I'm obviously your host, Paria, as you know, because Jay Lee just said it 15 times. <laughs> and my guest today is Jay Lee. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I always do the blurb at the beginning, just in case it's someone's like first time listening. Yeah. This podcast is about uh, discussing the importance of talking about mental health and therapy to help destigmatize and normalize all things mental health, whether it's depression, anxiety, any of that kind of stuff, and just anything that you might be going through. So kind of like my whole point is just to show that even if you feel like you might be going through something alone, you probably aren't alone. And hoping, I'm hoping that if people listen to this, they can realize that the things they're going through, um, you know, they're not alone in it. And there's other people out there. And even if they can't afford therapy, hopefully they have someone they can confide in, like a friend or family member that they can talk to about what's going on. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I think therapy is incredibly important. I think it's definitely one of the hardest things to do for yourself. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of the, the greatest gifts that you can give to yourself as well. I think there are certain things, obstacles that are in place that make it difficult to access um, mental health resources. Mm-hmm. A lot of healthcare plans don't cover counseling. Yeah. They only cover psychologists or, um, you know, they have to have certain credentials for them to qualify for your plan to get coverage. And, and that's if you even, even have it coverage, in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right? So, and then... In general, even a sliding scale for most counselors, you're still sitting at around minimum $80 for 50 minutes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or you have like, there are some great resources where they're at like $25 for an hour, but the wait lists mm-hmm. are so long, yeah. right? Or you're like limited to a certain amount. We do have a wonderful resource through the queer community community it's in the downtown west end and they offer a set amount of weeks complimentary to queer people that are seeking counseling so you know when you're looking at intersectional mental health issues i think that that's a fantastic resource to access i have friends who have accessed it and spoken quite highly of it especially in their process of coming out when they needed some kind of guidance and like an an objective outlet that they could feel safe talking to. Mm-hmm. I um, have been on and off with counseling myself 
over quite a few years. I think it's a delicate process and I think it takes a lot of trial and error to find someone that you really feel like you connect with and that can really assist you in like whatever period of your life you're going through. You know, I think sometimes someone that's helped you through one thing might not be qualified to help you through another thing. Totally, And sometimes, like, unfortunately, with every profession, you do get people who should not be practicing. (laughs) But I don't think that should discourage you in, you know, setting up boundaries and taking ownership to say no, like, no more with you. And then find someone else that you feel safe with. Because, yeah, if you don't have a good, like, relationship with a particular counselor, that's not necessarily like representative of therapy or counseling as a whole is just like not a good pairing between the two of you you know absolutely so I definitely encourage anyone who is taking that step or wanting to to keep trying if it's just someone didn't work Mm -hmm. I know with me and that's the other thing is like on top of the money part a big part of it is just the stigma and having like the courage to finally do it. Totally. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot of obstacles in the way, but that's why I figured at least if we can get the first one out of the way, which is to get rid of the stigma, that's huge. And then hopefully with more people talking about it and with it getting more normalized, it will also be easier to access, you know, like obviously this isn't going to happen overnight, but I just think that if we normalize it, it can help, you know? Absolutely. I think normalizing starts with not just normalizing going to counseling but normalizing talking about your feelings within your circles Mm -hmm. and I think we've come a long way for people to realize that there has been you know a strong dislike and even stigma that is extremely backwards and gendered about talking about feelings Mm -hmm. or totally you know being too emotional is Mm -hmm. x y or z you're being Um, whiny you're being negative get over it and it's like anxiety isn't something you can just get over like trauma from your childhood or from a relationship or grief that you're dealing with is not something you can just get over and that's part of the issue is like being told that that's all you're supposed to do and even trying and being like wait this isn't working because it's not that easy you know you can't just not think about something in fact that's like the opposite of what you should be doing absolutely I think feeling heard I think it's a valuable thing for a lot of people and I encourage people to surround themselves with people that make them feel heard that you feel seen Mm -hmm. that you feel comfortable to be authentically yourself around I think that's like a really big issue that is pervasive with the dawn of social media and the pressures that we feel to kind of commodify and curate ourselves is that suddenly yeah and doing it for the gram and you know or keeping stuff from the gram or it's just gonna naturally bleed into other areas of your life Mm -hmm. and then you're gonna feel this disconnect and I think It takes a lot of self-reflection to realize like, okay, what am I editing? And like, is that maybe making my mental health suffer? Like, am I, you know, not giving myself the opportunity to be authentically myself Mm -hmm. and give myself the opportunity to speak to my loved ones about what I'm actually going through Mm -hmm. rather than just like saying like, yeah, I was on vacation or I went on the patio and drank this or, you know, like, look at me. Like I, I, all I do is like talk about my work and stuff like that. But it's like, actually like what are you going through who do you need to talk to about what you're going through because it's amazing what you said previously about like when you feel understood and when you find out it's amazing the power and feeling like you're not alone or that someone like has gone through the same experience is going through the same experience you know and can like just share that they're 
struggling. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's really great. It's actually really funny. So I had therapy earlier this week. And at the very, very end of the session, I just shared with my therapist, who I absolutely love and adore. I, I just shared her the good news of I was like, by the way, I just started doing a podcast. And like, I told her, and then she was like, really happy for me. And the reason I brought it up was mostly because like something I'm discussing in therapy is like my extreme fear of failure and how that like stops me from doing stuff. And I like overthink and I look ahead to like all the potential ways it could go wrong. And then that'll often keep me from doing a lot of the things that I want to do and that's something that she's trying to help me like move past and get better at so I thought this was like a good thing to share with her and then she was like what's it about and I'm like well ironically it's about therapy and like I shared with her what it was about and she was super supportive and proud and she was like I think that's really really important and it's really great because I was like yeah well who knows if anyone even listens of course like going back to my whole thing of like who knows like maybe no one's even listened and then she said she's like yeah but even if you reach one listener one person who's going through something alone and struggling and like help them realize that they're not alone that's huge and I was like well you're right <laughs> so that was like such a good point and it made me so happy that I told her because she was like so supportive and I'm like man I love you Aww, that's amazing <laughs> yeah so that's what I'm kind of hoping for with this yeah I think um I think it's a universal truth that anything that you do no matter what the if what's shoulda coulda what is could be as long as you just reach one person that's all that matters you know like and sure you're gonna have 10 or 20 haters but you're also gonna have a handful of crazy supporters Mm -hmm. right like that love exactly what you're doing Mm -hmm. and vouch for everything that you're doing so I think that fear is just natural excitement when you're embarking on new territory yeah and also something else to note when you are thinking about what that person could say or even when they do actually say it um something my friend Rosen mentioned I think in our episode is she was like whenever I am feeling like a little bit of apprehension about like whether or not I should post something because I'm focusing too much on what some people might think or say I just remind myself like what are they doing like at least I'm doing it you know, and that really helps. It's like, at least I'm putting myself out there and I'm doing something and I'm taking risks and I'm doing something like exciting for me. And like, you're just sitting there not doing anything and judging others. And because that makes you feel like better about yourself to just talk shit about other people's, you know, hobbies or talents or whatever it is that they want to do. So that's kind of like, I'm getting better at like, just thinking of it that way. Just like, you know, what are you, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Who asked you? Perfectionism is a huge thing. I think it's, historical you know it comes from historical cultures within just specifically your family culture and then you know that can sometimes inform the way we evaluate ourselves and we put ourselves on you know this very heavy standard that's unattainable really when Mm -hmm. you think about it who can be Mm -hmm. perfect how exhausting yeah exactly how Mm -hmm. you know and I think it squanders a lot of people's natural creative desires. And I think that's also part of this difficulty with talking about mental health issues because we're under this assumption that we're supposed to be perfect. So we have to maintain this facade of being perfect. Yeah, because that's you admitting to not only others, but also to yourself that things aren't perfect. Yeah. um, And that something could be wrong and I don't mean wrong like in a bad way it's just like that something you know needs healing or addressing yeah you know not like it is bad or that you are bad so yeah that's part of why it's hard to accept for some people I think but it honestly truly is like the best thing I've ever done so I just hope that that 
that other people can have that same feeling, you know, if you've been considering it. Try to... I struggle with perfectionism all mm-hmm. the time. And it's really hard because a lot of my career, the wins are not tangible until the end. And so a lot of the time my perfectionism gets bogged down in the like, oh, well, I didn't hear back for, you know, this. I didn't. We didn't mention what your career is, this. by the way. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I am an actor. I also mm-hmm. am a writer and just a creative in general. And I think as creatives, like it's difficult because a lot of our work that goes into our careers, which are very valid, but just because the general public doesn't understand the amount of work that goes into it, um, are, is so intangible. You know, we don't clock in and out like regular people. We don't, you know, necessarily get a steady wage. And a lot of what we do in terms of success to making it in capitalistic terms mm-hmm. requires the like validation of other people, requires someone else to give you that job. My, so, it, like, you know, my perfectionism and my anxiety often tries to, you know, that mm-hmm. spectral fear comes in. But then I have to remind mm-hmm. myself that everything that I'm doing before that is already valid. I don't need someone else to validate it. It's a process. It's work. Constant work. It's constantly trying to unlearn those habits and behaviors that you've aggregated over your lifespan And, you know, trying to be better for yourself, trying to love yourself better. And that takes work. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. I wish it was a, like a switch that you could just flick on. How much easier would that be? But I know, right. It's it's really important work. You know, I call it um, like refriending yourself and reparenting yourself. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you wish someone had said to you in these moments previously that, you know, you developed this outlook. How can I change that? How can I talk to myself better? Mm -hmm. And how can I do better for myself and, you know, whomever else I can pass it on to, whether it's your circle of friends, your family, even a stranger. But it's also so important to like extend that compassion to yourself because like I'm someone who that's easy for me to extend it to others. Um, it's really easy for me to like empathize for others, but then like I think and talk pretty horribly like about myself and I could be really hard on myself. And something that you kind of mentioned remind me like a really common, I think, tool in therapy is like when I'm talking about the stuff with my therapist and I've, I figure out the root of why like I am a perfectionist or why I have a fear of failure, like all these little things like finding out that it comes from like when I was younger mm. and like with my family and then finding out like, oh, it started like at this age, something that she does. And I think most ther- a lot of therapists do is they say like, and what would you say to young Priya or eight year old Priya if she were here right now? And it's like, as you're saying those words, you realize that those same words, like they still have an impact now and they still mean the same thing. So it's just like when you find yourself thinking that way to like recognize what you're feeling and have some compassion for yourself, realize why you're feeling that way and then like move forward. So yeah, it really helps to kind of have compassion for yourself in those moments. Oh my God, totally. I look at it also sometimes it's like you think about when you're hangry, <laughs> you are going through all of these emotions and then like an hour later, you're like, oh, it's because I haven't eaten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the same thing. But now with like a habit that's not the healthiest for yourself, you go, yeah. oh, I'm feeling like this. Like I should just quit my my creative career. I should just get a nine to five. Oh, my parents were right. I'm not successful. X, Y, and Z. And then you go, wait, that's historical tape recordings that I've internalized from other people. I need to mm-hmm. eat something, give myself some mm-hmm. self-love and change the script on that. Mm-hmm. I think it was exactly. like the same thing, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so funny. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And it's like a process. That's another thing too is realizing that like just finally deciding you're going to go and wanting to change doesn't mean it's going to be overnight. Doesn't mean it's going to be after one session mm-hmm. or like one month or two or whatever. Like it'll, it's going to be an ongoing journey, but you get better at recognizing those things. And it honestly, it's just, I can't recommend it enough, which is why I'm recommending it on each episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And here I am again to remind you. <laughs> reminding you that healing is not linear. And you're going to go through mm-hmm. waves where, you know, you're going to be really diligent. You know, you're going to see a therapist that is or a counselor that you really jive with. And then, you know, everything might be gravy for a little while, whether it's a couple months, a couple years, 10 years, and maybe something else will be triggered. Mm-hmm. You know, healing is not linear. Certain things that we think we've gotten over and we're like, yeah, dealt with that, check mark that off. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we're triggered again and we're like, oh, never mind. Healing is layers. Yeah. That I have to like, oh, I healed this level. I need to go to the next level and heal mm-hmm. that. So, you know, you're going to need to, you know, find a way to find the best coping mechanisms and tools to help you heal. So getting counseling, you know, some people find writing, journaling a mm-hmm. great outlet. You know, there's so many things that you can do that you don't need to feel ashamed about getting the help that you need because you only have one you. Yeah. And it's funny because as you're saying that, like, I'm thinking some people might be like, God, that sounds like a lot of fucking work. Like, I do not want to do it, but I promise you it's worth it. Absolutely. (laughs) Think how much work you put into other stuff that isn't worth it. Well, you think about (laughs) it. Uh, My friend and I were talking about we are sometimes our own biggest obstacles when it comes to spending money for the things that are actually important, but we have no problem batting an eye when we're like, oh, wireless headphones, they cost an arm and a leg. No big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, like going to see a counselor like costs like $120. Hmm. No, I think I'll spend the $400 on the iPod, whatever, head cordless things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'll forego a session of therapy yeah. or, you know, I'm going to spend, mm-hmm. you know, $200 on a bunch of clothes you or know, whatever substance out. or yeah. And, and then it's you're just putting like, things into perspective. Right. Yeah. And like, again, like if you haven't done it before, it seems scary. Cause you're like, well, what if I don't get what I need out of it? So I'm spending all this money. And like, at least with like headphones, you're like, I'll pay the money and I'll immediately get the headphones. Right. So I think that's what people think yeah. where they're like, but what if I don't like it? And it's like, you just like, believe me, it's going to be so helpful in the long run. Well, it's hard too. Cause like your first session when you're seeing a counselor is the weirdest roller coaster because you're suddenly you just like have all these tears coming out of you you're Mm -hmm. like I thought I was just gonna be awkward and not and then suddenly you're saying your deepest darkest secrets yeah like I brought up stuff that I thought like I didn't remember and like these like repressed memories have come out that I'm like where were you hiding like what the fuck and especially after that first one or the first few you leave feeling like this like open wound because you're like I still have so much more to say oh yeah <laughs> like you just like open the floodgates I actually asked my counselor because we were doing 50 minute sessions and I was like this is not enough time because also I'm the kind of person I can't just sit on the couch and be like okay punch in here are all of my thoughts yeah I have to like get there kind of be like how was your weekend how are you doing how did that thing go and that takes 15 minutes and you're like I know Every minute costs me like $10. Exactly. So I actually asked, which is a great tool I think you should ask, is like, do you offer, you know, extended sessions and still like offer like a sliding scale? So oh, interesting. my counselor, you know, I didn't have very much money taking care of my dad full time and I was getting some counseling and I asked first initially, ask, 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 even if it doesn't say on the website, ask for a sliding scale, tell them your situation, see what you can negotiate and then 
if you know that 50 minutes is not enough time for you, ask if they have extended sessions. I was doing hour and a half sessions, hour and 15 minute sessions. And you can cover a lot of ground while still, you know, maintaining how comfortable you are. Yeah. I also have an issue where I'm like 50 minutes. Like that's totally not enough. Yeah. But on the like subject of like the first thing you brought up with just even like asking how your counselor or therapist is doing, mm-hmm. I think I was listening to a different podcast discussing that and how uh, one of the girls was like, I always feel awkward at the beginning because I want to ask my counselor how she's doing it because I feel rude if I don't, but like I'm taking up so much time doing it. And then she like actually asked her therapist, like, is it bad if I don't? And like, I think it's important to know what the therapist said, which is like, you're here for you. I'm also here for you. This is my job. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like, like you can have like don't like not greet them yeah like obviously you can even say how you're doing but you don't have to have like a whole thing yeah because they're not gonna think it's rude like they're like i can't believe that girl didn't ask me how my weekend was yeah. it's like their job is to help you their job isn't to talk about themselves you know they're not gonna get paid to talk about their shit <laughs> like so they're they're aware that you need to get like right into it even if you're like easing in sometimes i still have to kind of you know ease in and don't really know what i'm going to talk about yet but in terms of feeling like bad about not asking your therapist about their life like it's not the same as with a friend like you don't mm-hmm. have to feel bad about that you know like they're not getting paid to tell you about their shit yeah No, totally. So don't worry about that. Absolutely. You know, we have gone through quite the upheaval. I'm going to come on and say it, I feel like since 2017. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, um, but especially 2020. Holy moly. I think everyone, you know, I feel like this time of forced self-reflection and a lot of people forcing themselves to occupy every second of, Mm -hmm. you know, every minute of COVID has you know, I think brought up a lot of stuff for people. And I feel like I encourage everyone who, you know, maybe face some demons that they thought they had overcome or face some new demons to really, you know, seek out the help that you need. And, you know, know that that was the same thing for probably every person on this planet during COVID who had time with themselves to reflect and face, you know, whatever they've been maybe pushing aside because they've been able to by occupying their time totally you know and reach out to your friends maybe you know they haven't been talking about it because they haven't been you know sure of where everyone stands but just say like hey start the discussion like Priya and I are doing right now have you been to therapy before do you know anyone that like would be a good recommendation like you know if you're not comfortable maybe discussing with your friends what you're going through, just say, like, I'm not really comfortable discussing what I'm going through right now because a good friend would be yeah. like, oh, my God, yeah, like, yeah, are you okay? Do you need to talk to me too? And just like, no, I'm not really comfortable to chat with you right now, but I appreciate you wanting to be there for me, but I would love, you know, access to any resources that you might have yeah, already. exactly. Yeah, ask around, see if your friends, loved ones have anything that they could recommend. And again, like I say this every time, if you can't afford it or it doesn't seem something feasible for you right now, even finding one person in your circle, mm-hmm. whether it's a parent or a friend or whoever that you feel you can talk to, it's not the same as a trained professional. It isn't a replacement, but it's better than nothing and it's better than suffering alone. So if you can find someone who you can confide in, that's huge. Yeah. And I think just differentiating too in your interpersonal relationships someone who is able to understand and be there for you without expecting therapy from them or vice versa without being you know someone sounding bored lending a shoulder and then feeling the need that you need to therapize them Mm -hmm. you are not 
required to do that. So I would just encourage like making sure that those boundaries are really set up so that, totally. you know, you, yeah. your relationship stays a place of respite. And I do want to get into, so what you had discussed, yeah. obviously you brought it up earlier that you are an actor, actor. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I think it's also, I guess it would be interesting to know, well, we've known each other for a really long time. Mm-hmm. We didn't go to school together, but we've, we like grew up in the same apartment complex, I think, and had like mutual friends since we were like little kids. Yeah. Um, but then five years ago, I was writing yeah. a web series, and I asked you if you wanted to be in it. Yeah. Um. So we worked on that together, and it was like very loosely based off of me and some of my best friends, and like the characters were kind of like combinations of my best friends, mm-hmm. and um, you were playing one of those roles. Yeah. And we spent so much time together working on that. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. I think there was like we saw each other. I think seven days in a row. Yeah. Straight. It was many, many hours. Constant. And then if we weren't like filming or editing, we were like brainstorming like new ideas. Cause like I had a whole bunch before I even like reached out to anyone about wanting to potentially be in it. Yeah. I had written a whole bunch of things. And this is because I had just like, I had just had an injury. So I couldn't work and I was like so bored at home. So I was like, now's the time. So I was, I was just like writing and writing and writing and I had, written a whole bunch of episodes and I had like plans for all the characters, but then you and I together would also brainstorm like other things. Oh yeah. So many brain babies. That yeah. We had. Yeah. And I always remember one, which is actually really interesting. So the character that you played, her name was Layla. And one day you had come to me you're like, Oh, I have an idea. So like basically how it starts with her story is it kind of begins with her breaking up with her like long time deadbeat boyfriend. If you remember, we were like, kind of exploring like what that's like and like oh okay now she's single so that what's that gonna be like yeah and you had brought to me like an idea you had where like the two characters go to a party and then by the end of the night yeah the Layla character is actually with a girl yeah and like if you were kind of like telling me like what if she's bi and I was like oh I had never considered it because the person that she was loosely based on was not bi so I had never considered writing her as bi but when you said it to me it just like it fit and it made sense. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally down. Like, that sounds great. I never thought about it, but why the hell not? And then I remember in that moment thinking, is Jaylee trying to tell me something? <laughs> because I think my subconscious was trying to tell something before I had even been aware. Because that's yeah. the thing, like, I still don't even know if you were, like, I remember, like, when we were hanging out, like, a lot at that time. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know if I'm allowed to keep this in, but you had, like, you didn't have a boyfriend at the time. And you had told me you never really had, like, you had never had a serious relationship. Mm-hmm. And, like, all I could think was, like, why? Like, Jaylee is, like, so pretty. She's so talented. She's so funny. She's so smart. Like, all these things. I'm, like, why is it? And, like, whenever we talk about it, you just be, like, I just haven't found, like, the right one. And I and I think, like, you know what? Good for her. Like, having high standards is good. Like, mm-hmm. I personally believe I'd rather be alone than be with someone who's, like, not worth my time. So I thought like, good for her. She's just like, you know, the people that she's met so far have just not been it for her. So she's like, uh, you know, you're not worth it. And then when you suggested that storyline to me, mm-hmm. I just had this like light bulb moment where I was like, is it because she's bi? But I didn't want to say anything because you had just said like it was for the character, right? Not you. And I'm like, I'm not going to assume this is about you because like in the same way that like everything I had written wasn't actual reality. Mm. I didn't want to just assume mm. that what you were saying. And then I thought, you know what? If that is the case, I'll just wait and like she can come to me and tell me on her own time. And if it isn't, then it isn't. And then like sure enough, like a year 
or so later. I don't know how much long, like two years later? I don't know when. Yeah, it was a few years later. Yeah, a few years later. I was like, yeah. oh, she has a girlfriend. <laughs> well. So there you go. Yeah. I think it's super funny. Well, something I do want to address. Um, I, throughout forever, always was questioned why I wasn't in a relationship. And obviously living in a heteronormative society, why I wasn't in a relationship with a boy, why I didn't have a boyfriend. And it was always this discourse around like, oh, well, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. How come you don't have a boyfriend to kind of Mm -hmm. validate why you're all these things? There must be something wrong with you. And I think that's a lot of people face this question. It's like, oh, you're this, you're that. How come you're not in a relationship? Yeah. You don't need a relationship Mm -hmm. to validate who you are. And especially like everyone has their objective perceptions of themselves. So, you know, I struggled a lot, I think, with perceptions of even, you know, people are always like, oh, you're beautiful, you're blah, blah, blah. But it's like, you know, I don't always see that when I look in the mirror. And I didn't see that for a very mm-hmm. long time when I looked in the mirror. I was, you know, heavily bullied, grew up in a very patriarchal household. I really struggled with the perceptions of myself. Not really that that influenced my dating life, but just kind of in general, like when people are kind of summating you in terms of your look and being like oh well you're this kind of look how come you don't have this like your relationship kind of validates why you're this or that like I think we need to change the discourse in general because yeah my whole life when I became like an adult Mm -hmm. was surrounded around okay great so you've achieved all these things aesthetically and you know how come you don't have a relationship to really put the bow on you being a woman? <laughs> yeah, it's so right? true. <laughs> and also just like needing that like yeah. external validation. Yeah. Um, and other people in like society and like maybe even friends and family expecting it. Totally. But also no yeah. one no one even thinking that maybe you could be happy alone. I mean like not that you, yeah, you totally. were, but like no one even considers that you're like, did you maybe think that I don't care to? Like, I'm not looking and, like, that's not my priority. And, like, yeah. that's the way I saw it with you is I was, like, she's focusing on school. Or not that, like, something was lacking, but because, obviously, the topic would come up because of, like, us writing together. Totally. And whatever, like, the topic would yeah. undoubtedly come up. And, like, for me, what I just thought was, like, oh, Jaylee is, like, focusing on school and her career and her life and her friends. And there's, like, so many other things to think about. She's, like, I don't have time for that. And also, you don't need... Like, you don't need to. It's not like there's a part missing. So, like, I didn't really think much about it. But then, yeah, of course, like, I couldn't help but think, oh, maybe it's because, you know, here I am assuming that it's... It's not even that I was assuming it was going to be a boy. It's just we had never talked about it being not a boy either. And then... Well, yeah. And then, I think yeah, that's and the then, beauty of living in a world that at least I'm trying and pushing for. And I know a lot of people are pushing for, for all the movements that are wonderfully going on today is not a heteronormative society so that there's no underlying assumptions about anyone's sexuality, that it is the beautiful spectrum that sexuality is so that when someone you meet them, like you're not automatically Mm -hmm. going, Oh yeah, they must be straight or, you know, just because they're in a relationship that appears heteronormative or appears same sex that that means that, yeah, they're confined to that box. It's like you're either gay or you're straight. And it's like, sexuality is one of the most incredible spectrums. Yeah. And it's a learning curve. It's, mm-hmm. you know, everyone who 
you know, first identify as a straight can find themselves identifying as a different thing, identifying as a different thing, identifying as a different thing. But I feel like there's this constant fixation because it's just the way our brains work for ease of processing information cognitively is that we have to stereotype things because that's easier to process. So we have to confine people within these boxes and like, oh, okay, I know that so I can label them. So then my brain can immediately go to that. Mm -hmm. And it's more like no understanding that things are so fluid and things change constantly yeah you can't constantly hold people to what they were five years ago 10 years ago and same thing for yourself I really encourage you not to hold yourself to these definitions or identities that you've formed because you feel obligated or you feel you'll let people down or Mm -hmm. you know we are constantly evolving and our sexuality will naturally evolve our identities will evolve everything in between our like political ideologies will evolve hopefully they'll evolve everyone mm-hmm. else but <laughs> you know so for me personally my journey with you know my orientation mm-hmm. actually started when I was really young like I knew that I liked from what I understood about genders at the time was boys and girls mm-hmm. and I knew I liked both mm-hmm. I freaking love girls at the age of like eight. Oh my god six and, you know, you get told, oh, no, you mean you love them as, like, a friend. A friend. Oh, you mean you like them as a friend. Yeah, oh, other this, t- other you people know, everyone, are telling yeah. you what you mean and how you feel. Yeah, and that's how you get socialized. That's how people get socialized in a heteronormative society. You have people being able to be like, no, you think this way, you actually think this way. And it just gets, like, brainwashed. And then you grow up thinking that. You're like, okay, I guess so, because everyone else is telling me that. Exactly. So they must be right. You're super young. You're told this message constantly, even with your curious young mind that hasn't been, you know, molded yet, being like, oh, but no, I, I actually think I do know what I like, which is everything under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then they're like, no, 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 no. You, d- you don't like a Neapolitan ice cream. You only like mm-hmm. the vanilla. Yeah. And it's like, actually, No. And so, you know, for the longest time, not only was I told that by adults in my life, Mm. I was bullied because I would be close to girls or, you know, even from a young age, I would have been like a vivid memory that I have. Um, And trigger warning, I'm going to talk about, you know, a lot of homophobic bullying. Um, I would have been seven. I would have been grade, I can't remember, grade one or two. I was really close to this friend that was also a girl. There was this like game that you could play where you're sitting on a swing and you could like face each other and like you tried to basically see how many people you could fit on the swing. So in our case, it was just the two of us Mm -hmm. and we were sitting face to face. It was called the spider. This is recess where we're just like sitting face to face on the thing. We look like a spider in our minds, our young seven-year-old, eight-year-old minds. And suddenly these groups of kids in my elementary school so ranging from either our same grade to grade seven gathered around us and started yelling like horrible things you know they called us lesbians they called us fags gays and this is two seven-year-old girls that are literally playing a game because you're just kids yeah like when you're that young, you're naturally curious, I feel like, about yourself and other kids. And you're becoming kind of like the self-aware individual that realizes they have their own predilections. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I did, I did like girls. Like I knew that. In that moment, I didn't. Yeah. But that was so traumatizing for me. Do you know what I mean? Like in that moment, I was just playing with my really good friend. But that moment defined a lot of how... I saw myself in in relation to other girls in close proximity.
proximity. Yeah. That was not a heteronormative way. It's also so silly because, like, even though you did like girls, like, that game was not at all sexual. It was completely innocent. And other people put that meaning onto it. And then they traumatized you so that even though that particular game wasn't in any way indicative of your sexuality, their reaction to it was still it still affected oh it still affected it later in life because then whenever you would have those feelings of like you know thinking and knowing that you liked girls you would remember that and be like but i'm not supposed to because that's how people react that's what they do so then you're like trying to push it out of your head it's so powerful violence in not just physical violence but verbal violence emotional violence like those are the most like visceral moments that we will get taken back to. That's how trauma gets stored in the body. Like I vividly remember like it would have been like a student teacher and then like this other teacher came out. They started yelling at us to like get off the swing. We were reprimanded. We were told like never allowed to play that game. Like never sit like that again. What the fuck? But this is the world we live in where people have been ingrained with this huge fear of this otherness that isn't an other. It's actually like very natural. Mm-hmm. But like it's such a powerful tool to create this fear of being punished for being who you are for being queer for anything to do with being queer queer was a derogatory word Mm -hmm. right like it Mm -hmm. was and it's been repatriated by the queer community to be like we're fabulous screw you right you know this is we are an umbrella of community of openness and acceptance sucks for you you know homophobes because you have to live the way you live but yeah it was really really awful and you know i encountered like a lot of situations where my sexuality was stamped out of me to make sure that I fell in line with the rest of everyone else, which was to be straight. Because mm-hmm. like throughout all of elementary school, I was so heavily bullied in terms of like this like lesbian fear. Like I would constant, like it was really weird mm-hmm. and like it was not okay. And A lot of the people that I went to elementary school, I went to high school with later. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bullying evolved. But, like, it was very traumatizing because I was very, like, regulatory in my behavior of how I was around these people that I knew were not accepting. And we're also fucking racist, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. I Um, will say, since you're on the topic, you might as well say what your race is because other people can't see you. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I guess I forget that. Um, So my my dad is Kurdish Iranian and my mom is Chinese. So I'm mixed race, which also brings really unique cultural elements into like my upbringing and who I am and struggles that I had. And um really unique ones in terms of being biracial and not following within a stereotype and never feeling like I actually belong because it's always a question mark on my face when people see me, mm-hmm. you know, like, what are you? I hate oh, what are you? Like, you're not I really hate this. what are you? I know. And like, it comes down to this, like also stereotyping this authenticity within a very specific gaze of like, you're not, enough of this or you're mm-hmm. too much of that still mm-hmm. and people are just trying to evaluate you and it's like yeah mixed race kids have a really interesting time in terms of navigating their identities and their place in the world and it's like you're either fetishized because everyone is like oh you're so beautiful because you're mi- so mixed race like absolutely or you're like 
not like you're not legitimized like you're not oh my god because it's like like you said like you're not iranian enough you're not chinese enough um you're too much of one to be fully the other and then if it's not that then yeah it's fetishizing and so it's like either way you're like this all sucks can i just be a person yeah try working in the film industry (laughs) yeah i know when you're getting cast and you're going out for ugh, and like me and my BIPOC friends we talk about this all the time but it's just like you go in and 100% when some like white person walks into the room and they do their audition at the end of it they go so what kind of white are you do you hail from the oh yeah they don't they don't ask you when you're white so where do you hail from Europe ancestral roots in Ireland you hail from the prairies of Canada like no but as soon as you're BIPOC oh yeah at least for my Iranian friends that are actors and myself, they go, great, so what are you? Like, what's your background? Excuse me? Like, what entitles you to that kind of information? Because clearly it's going to dictate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my job eligibility in casting. And oftentimes, yeah, like, I go in and they're looking for, you know, Asian and, like, or Chinese or whatever. And Mm -hmm. they're like, hmm. What are you, though? Because, like, I feel like there's something else there. And it's like, yeah. oh, great. So I'm not Asian enough for you. Perfect. Yeah. You know? It's like, so I'm too Asian to play, like, the character that you saw as white because white is default. And then when there is specifically a casting call for an Asian character and I go in, then you're like, mm, but you're not Asian enough. There's something else in the mix. I'm, like, messing it up. One hundred And then same if it was, like, wanting a Middle Eastern character, you would go in and they're like, but there's something else there. Like, yep. you don't fit the bill. And you're like, so I'm just not a person. I don't fit the stereotype. Yeah. I don't fit this, like, Orientalist notion of what it is to be Asian or Middle Eastern, you know? And I've encountered that my whole life. Like, even when I was a kid, like, I, I sound, quote unquote, Canadian. Mm-hmm. I don't. But then again, like, what is actually sounding Canadian, mm-hmm. right? But in that context of 2000, 2001, these kids would be like, oh, like, you're a fob, but like, not really a fob. And for anyone who's never heard the term fob, it's a derogatory saying that you're fresh off the boat as an immigrant. When Canada, the entire land, everyone is an immigrant except for indigenous, indigenous people. Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> I never, like I was always just like such a curveball. for anyone that encountered me. I was this like spectral curveball of like, what is this? Like, you know, you sound this way, but you look this way. I was always reminded of my difference. I was always reminded that I was different from the people that I was around. And I grew up with crazy racist kids. Mm-hmm. I really wonder if like, if these kids, who, you know, say that they're not racist now, if they remember how much racial trauma that they targeted on the people that were in my groups. And like, I really think that they, again, by their white privilege, really don't see what they did as being really consequential for a lot of people that I grew up with. Like, it was so crazy. I was in this classroom and all the white kids were sitting in the front of the classroom. Mm -hmm. All the BIPOC kids were sitting in the back of the classroom. And... This kid, who was obviously white, put up a sign in the back corner no. that said, Foreigner's Corner. No. Yes, this is grade six. Oh, my God. This is grade six. Yeah. A lot of the things that I bring up 
it's really shocking at like, you know, a lot of people would be really disgusted by that, but a lot of people wouldn't see anything wrong with that. Too. Yeah. Cause they're like, well, it's true. <laughs> you were foreign, weren't you? He was just labeling it. <laughs> oh my God. And it's also really interesting because especially right now that we're like, you know, talking about it even more because of the current climate, like even more than usual. That story reminds me how much I kind of resent all those stories about how like kids don't see race and kids don't see color. And like yeah. people love to say that like kids aren't racist mm-hmm. and ask like I know from my own personal experience but I pretty confidently can say if you were to ask any person of color Mm -hmm. their experiences as children they were bullied for looking different or for being a different race and did feel it Mm -hmm. so you're either lying or blissfully like ignorant and in denial that kids can also be racist because like then how come I experienced it Mm -hmm. so like you have to have those conversations with your children because like if like someone's teaching them they're learning it somewhere like how was I bullied for being Persian or looking different or being Middle Eastern or whatever when I was a kid if they weren't learning it from somewhere so either they heard it at home or it was just in society or even if like the parents weren't teaching them that they also weren't working hard enough to teach them like anti-racism or teach them that it was wrong because like where'd it come from then (laughs) are you going to deny all of our experiences and say they didn't happen and also don't be naive to the fact that just because you view yourself as a parent Mm -hmm. or as a guardian as being you know anti-racist that you're actually doing anti-racist work to make sure that your kids friends Mm -hmm. and their parents their friends parents are actually anti-racist yeah don't be fooled it takes a village to raise an idiot takes a village to raise a racist or a homophobe and it's a lot of people in your community that have effects on your shitty kids it's true and also like how would you know because they're not coming to you yeah. telling you their racist thoughts so like it's yeah. like you just need to teach them so that they know not to do that absolutely and you know bridging that back to mental health is like the statistics are very high that you know BIPOC kids mental health suffers so much more than white kids and it's because they're facing intersectional barriers mm-hmm. aggression you know situations that a white kid doesn't have to face And a lot of them is things literally from the age of six, racism or racism and homophobia, racism and, you know, disability and like the lack of access that we still have in our society to people who identify as disabled. You know, there are so many different situations when it comes to religion, you know, being non-white, socioeconomic status, like a lot of those issues affect mental health and a lot of the times... They're not dealt with in a young age because your parents are just trying to get by and survive. You're just trying to get by and survive. And later on, you realize like all these things are coming up and you don't quite realize that they're so deeply connected to your experiences when you were younger. And so it's really important to find like a community that can understand what you're going through and find a therapist and like do the work to find a therapist maybe that is not white so they can really understand what you've had to face yeah and this is okay obviously i hope it doesn't come across like this but we're not being like anti-white like i think both of our partners are white this isn't us being like white people are bad it's just the idea that like people of color we don't navigate the same barriers yeah exactly (laughs) bipoc people like it's like you you have face issues that you don't as a white person you know like there's additional stuff it's not to say that white kids can't also get bullied but they don't get bullied for being Asian or Middle Eastern or black. Do you race know what I mean? Like it's a factor. Like, yeah, race isn't barrier. in a factor in yeah. their bullying. Absolutely. And on the topic of finding a therapist, like that was really important for me. So first yeah. of all, like I knew I, I just wanted a woman. I just felt like I would 
be more comfortable speaking to a woman because of some of the issues I want to talk about. I especially was like, I wanted to be a woman of color, preferably an Iranian woman if I can. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, the clinic that I go to had like actually a few. They had like quite a few women of color and they actually had two or three Iranian women. And I chose one and I love her. And it's because I knew that like some of the things I wanted to talk about were also cultural. Like I know Mm -hmm. that like, and like, I just needed someone who got it. Like I wasn't there to also now have to educate my like white therapist on what that means so that they can then come and help me. Like I needed someone who already understood it. Yeah. So like whatever works for you, you know, but like I do encourage people to like seek that out as well. Someone who fits more, maybe with something they identify with or they're more comfortable with someone who they think that can be more understanding and not to say that like a white therapist wouldn't be understanding but it's just I needed them to like get that aspect without me having to explain it you know yeah absolutely and I think just building on the fact like just go with someone that you're comfortable with regardless of what they are visibly whether it's you know different background or you know whatever gender identification that they have we Mm -hmm. can't just like assume anything anymore which is wonderful in this day and age you know like we need to protect the trans and gender fluid community you know outside of sexuality but also in these professions and I think when it comes to also finding the therapist for you when mm-hmm. just to build off of what you said because I do want to address it like it's not about being anti-white mm-hmm. a lot of racism has been anti-x except for white a lot of white racism perpetuated by white people Mm -hmm. has been against any other race so when we flip the script it's easy for people to assume that it means okay well if we're flipping the script and we're saying like a white person doesn't understand this it means you're being anti-white but no you're getting that confused with colonial racism which is racist Mm -hmm. we're not talking about now being racist against white people Mm -hmm. we're talking about these are systemic and systematic issues that affect everyone else's lives that don't necessarily affect white people Mm -hmm. and so you wouldn't understand that Mm -hmm. and the idea that you think just acknowledging your whiteness is calling you out is like it's, it's like it's just having to never deal with race growing up and living your life as a white person that when your whiteness is called out you assume it's being racist but it's like, no, that's what you are. And, you know, like, that's not what we're doing here. It's not reverse racism. That's not a thing. <laughs> well, it's just welcome to being suddenly aware of your difference. Mm-hmm. Welcome to your very first experience that at the age of 35 or whatever you are, for the first time, mm-hmm. someone goes, okay, you're white. And that means that you are not the majority mm-hmm. voice in this conversation about race. Whereas we, as BIPOC people have had to be faced with our otherness Mm -hmm. from a very young age, from the get-go. Like one of my favorite quotes is by France Fanon from The Fact of Blackness. And he says, I am simply overdetermined from without. That's not a direct quote. It's a partial quote. I am overdetermined from without. And he talks about how like you... Can just be sitting there and someone looks at you and they have all these like predetermined misconceptions about you just from the way you look you know we are faced with that a lot of the time and then you intertwine you know who you're with sexually or your socioeconomic status like all these different things come into factor that's what we have to go through as BIPOC people from the day that we set foot in 
you know, these Western societies that have always kind of felt like they are entitled to be here, whereas everyone else needs to respect that they're given the privilege to be here. Yeah, exactly. And then it not only affects everyday life, but it affects careers. Yeah. It's so funny, like even you saying getting like that, what are you in auditions? Like I would just get it like in everyday life, just like oh yeah, PAing. I would get people who I didn't even know who have like – I didn't even know their name yet, maybe. And they would say, what are you? And it's always like, uh, human? Like, what yeah. do you mean? Like, I don't understand the question. And it's also just this weird, like, I don't owe you telling, like, it's just such an uncomfortable position to be in. And then, like, them being like, oh, that's so interesting. Oh and then I've also gotten people being, like, not believing it and be like, oh, you looked more like this. And it's like, okay, so now you're also telling me what I'm supposed yeah. to be. And, like, you're the not. The worst is when they're like. Oh, what are you? Oh, you must be this. Like, you're this, aren't you? And you're like, I haven't even had a chance yeah. to tell you what I am. And you're already just like... Guessing. Making your guess. Like, it's a fun game to guess what I am. Yeah. What? And then when you tell them and they're like disappointed with what you said, <laughs> because they're like, oh, I actually thought you were Latina. And you're like, okay, sorry. <laughs> like, I don't... Cool. No, I I get that all the time. And it like, it ties back again. Like, I, you know, look like another, but then sound like the same, I guess, or whatever. But like, I was serving hated serving and this older gentleman in his 70s or 80s i'm serving him and his daughter and i think her partner i'm serving them having conversation you know and suddenly he goes where are you from and i was like uh, and then the daughter immediately was like dad and then yeah. i was like no, no no it's fine like where are you from and i go like i'm canadian i live in canada my whole life he's like no 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 but where are you from originally and i was like well I was born in Shanghai. He's like, oh, but you don't look Chinese. I was like, yeah, you know, had to go into now. Like, oh, great. Now let me tell you exactly everything as if it's yeah. any of your business. Yeah, do you want to know my whole family tree? Like, oh, what? Gosh. what is going to satisfy you? And then he goes, wow, I'm just so impressed. And I was like, okay, that's weird. And he goes, because you speak English so well. And I was like, excuse me? He's like... I just told you I lived here my whole he life. Like, Where did you not he hear me? he was like, yeah, but you speak English so well. Like, you have no accent. And then I was literally like, yes, because I been here my whole life and he's like but yeah like how did you get rid of your accent oh my god and I was like what and then the daughter at this point was like oh my god dad and he's like I just don't get it and then for the rest of their evening he just kept commenting on how wonderful it was that I had assimilated so well oh my god that I had foregone my accent and spoke English so well I couldn't even believe it I was god so oh, the daughter must have been like dad we're leaving the heftiest tip because you're embarrassing me <laughs> I was literally like what white nonsense is this yeah exactly <laughs> no and it's so funny because like to bring it back what we said before one of the first times I heard that I remember being like eight or nine and mentioning so like with me i actually wasn't born here i was born in iran but i came here when i was four so like pretty fucking early on yeah and then like learned english and obviously um i can speak it fine now yeah i remember like it came up for some reason in conversation that i wasn't born in canada and then a friend of mine a close friend of mine at the time who was white goes oh, you have no accent like being so confused and she was like eight and so like even like children can have that thought what like, like but why don't you have one then like why don't you sound different yeah and it's like because i grew up here yeah and like my all my school years have been here and like the majority of my talking years have been here like you don't talk that much in the beginning anyway <laughs> so it's it is funny and like how impressed they get that we can speak oh, it yeah. and then, no, like you mean pick up on everything yeah it's pretty ridiculous but then do you get so like because you were saying how obviously you get the whole like, oh, you look too Asian to play this Middle Eastern part and vice versa. And then you were saying also that you sound Canadian. Like, do you 
go for parts where they're like wanting you to have an accent like they want you to play up like an Asian accent or something do you get that yeah I've successfully executed a Japanese accent through an actress friend of mine who is Japanese and she's a Japanese dialect coach so I went to the source and you know I had proper training but I actually am unable to do a Mandarin accent I've had to decline auditions because I don't know how to do one does it also make you uncomfortable um, I guess it depends on the context. Like, yeah. is it is the part racist or is it because the character happens exactly. to, you know? I think like, it's really important for representation to be authentic. But I have heard of other actresses who are Asian and they've, you know, booked a role with a North American accent. And suddenly when they're with the director producer, like, great. So we're thinking of now putting on, you know ex-Asian accent and the person mm-hmm. goes why that doesn't add to the character at all if anything now you're just it's a stereotype fetishizing and stereotyping me in con like it just makes no sense so I've had friends who have you know obviously been like I don't really think that this role is for me anymore then you know mm-hmm. but yeah I yeah the biggest thing that I struggle with is not being seen as Middle Eastern I really, you know, like I cherish that part of my background. You know, I speak Farsi with my dad and, you know, I want, I I rarely get the opportunity to play roles that are, you know, Middle Eastern. And, you know, a lot of the time it's casting or narrow-minded directors, narrow-minded producers, narrow-minded networks being like, well, how will our audience know that she's Middle Eastern? (laughs) Because I don't fit the stereotype of whatever that they're thinking that only a Middle Eastern person looks. And Mm -hmm. it it just, you know, it's, it's really interesting when we think about what the white gaze is in terms of this industry. Like you see it with colorism too, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have black actors who struggle with stereotyping based on the hue of their skin, the level of blackness that they have. You see you know, mixed race, people really suffering because they're pushed the periphery because we don't fit within the stereotypes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, mixed race when it comes to, like, you know, any kind of mixed background under the sun, unless you're white passing. And then even then, it's like... if you you, hit the gold mine. Yeah, exactly. And then (laughs) even then, it's like, even if you do get a part, it's like you're always getting the parts that are because they're Asian or they're Middle Eastern like you can't just get a part like you're never just like a character like you have does that make sense yeah I have gotten it's actually interesting like some of the roles that I've booked I've I've actually been the wild card where it's been completely open and they've saw everyone under the sun and like those are the ones that I've booked but then at the end of the day it's still a role that is very much like a messenger peripheral role that's super small that is usually going to anyone who is non-white because at like this industry for visibility is a pyramid where all the white actors are on top with all the small, like the smaller to choose from big meaty leading roles. And then you have all these other messenger roles at the bottom that they're like, great. So now we're going to hire like a Latina person or a Latino person. We're going to, and it's token stuff, tokenism. And it usually, and unfortunately so much of it comes from like, I know in the past few years we've been talking more in the industry about like having more representation on camera and it's getting a little bit better teeny tiny steps but like I think something we need to work on more is representation behind the camera behind the scenes 100% that's part part of the issue of why there isn't more characters 
of color is because it's often still like white producers and white writers. And then even when there is like a black character or an Asian character or brown character or whatever, they're the token because they're thinking, okay, everyone's white. We need, we need one in there. So this doesn't look so bad. Like, I feel like they're just trying to like check off stuff so they can, you know, not look too white. And like the character, it's not actually people of color writing these stories. And that's also why like people like you and me also in addition to just loving writing, Another reason why we want to, because it's like, well, if there aren't stories that show us or are for us, then why not write them ourselves, you know? Yeah, because you open up the gaze, you control the narrative, you liberate people to, like, play all these roles that they wish would help inform a society that's only being told the same stories over and over again. Like, that's why I say cast a queer person of color as the leading title titular role which mm-hmm. is so exciting for Batwoman is now being played by a queer mm-hmm. black woman yes um, amazing yeah but that's exactly it because then you have people who you know come from like the same communities who hold a lot of you know homophobic stereotypes or you know whatever and they're able to now see like oh that person represented who looks like them is also playing a queer character mm-hmm. it paves the way for mm-hmm. so many generations because totally. then you, yeah just seeing yourself on screen representation is so huge and then the other part of it too is like unfortunately it's like most characters are white and then when there are characters of color most often in like hollywood like american productions it's one of two ways either that person of color that character is stereotypically black or stereotypically Asian in those token ways of like, you know, like the sassy black friend or the nerdy, smart Asian friend. Like it's always those stereotypes. The desexualized Asian often. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Or it's the opposite, which is they're clearly on paper white characters and they just happen to be cast of color. Mm Mm-hmm. But like what I'm saying with that is like, yeah, okay, that's a little bit better. That's one step forward because at least like like you wrote it, maybe you wrote it as white, but then the the black actor or the Asian actor or whatever happened to be the best one for the role and you cast them in it. But why that's still not enough is so many writers, because so many writers are white, they still write white as default. Yeah. So even though the person represented on screen might be a person of color you're still not getting that character and that culture represented because they're still playing a white character. Does this make sense? (laughs) Well, yeah. Even think about casting directors predominantly who are white. Mm -hmm. Their automatic default when they're reading a script, even if it's open-ended, the leads, who are they going to automatically envision is a white leading man, a white leading woman. Exactly. Even if it still says like all races, but they still have an idea of what they're expecting. Exactly. And then and then they also think like, well, there's one, we already cast one black person, so we don't need another. Because you only need the token. Oh, you know? Absolutely. I was listening to a panel with Jem Gerard, and uh, it was amplifying black voices in the Vancouver film industry, which was amazing. And um, Jem Gerard was talking, basically they were, you know, having a discussion with these uh, a white these white directors being like, how are you going to change this script? How are you going to make things better? What have you, you know, faced in in your, you know, your careers that point pinpoint exactly that this film industry is racist. And uh, Jem Gerard was talking about how on one of the projects that they were working on, a black actor had auditioned and they were like, 
they're perfect. I want them for this role. And then I don't know if it was producers or network. They're like, oh, we already casted like a black person. We don't want to turn this into a black film. That's not the audience we're going it's for. It's so funny <laughs> how it's like the moment there's more than one. It's a black it's film. Bullshit. Or an Asian film. It's bullshit. But you could have all white people and you're expected like a show that is predominantly, if not all, white people yeah. is expected to be seen by everyone. Like they're like, this is supposed to be for everyone. Like if you're Asian, black, brown, whatever, you can watch this. Yeah. But like the moment there's like two or three black people or whatever, they're like, no, we can't do that because only black people will watch it. Like what? That's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then you have amazing movies like Black Panther, um, Crazy Rich Asians, mm-hmm. The Farewell, Get, Get out. out, all these. And then you have this discourse suddenly where it's like, oh, well, like, are you really seeing that movie because it's good? Are you really saying that movie was good? Or is this kind of like a vote with your ticket kind so of thing? And it's like, really? Mm-hmm. You're really not going to watch this movie that is full of these incredible actors telling these incredible stories because you don't identify predominantly with the representation in the film and yet you think that's okay for everyone else. Yeah, exactly. And also it's so dumb for filmmakers to do that because it's like even economically, like you're being so stupid. You don't for want not, our money. Yeah, for not realizing Yeah, for not realizing that <laughs> there's a money? huge market to exactly like you don't want to be successful. Is that what's happening right now? Because like Black Panther alone the highest grossing shows. Films. Yeah. It's like there's a huge market to tap into. And I'm not saying go about it just like money dollar sign. Not to come decolonization. I'm not trying to say like dollar sign eyes like only do it because you're like "Mm, this turns into cash but also like come on be smart do you not realize how much you're alienating certain groups and that if you were to create these stories for these people by these people they would watch it and it would be successful like I'm not even just thinking like greedy just like you're so dumb for not realizing that people want to see themselves on screen and they will come out by the thousands, your racist by the hundreds gaze of thousands. on the industry is not economically or financially to your advantage. No, it doesn't make sense. One example I always think of, it's actually funny, I thought about it a few times while we were talking. Um, when you had a guest role on a show, I don't know if we should mention what the show is, but I think you know which one I'm talking about. Well, let's not for now. Exactly, let's see. not. Yeah. I think you just had like you were in one episode. And I remember you posted a few pictures on your Instagram of having been like landed this role on this pretty popular big show that films here in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really excited for you and proud of you and then going to the comment section. And it was flooded with Iranian people being so happy to see representation. Do you remember? And there's people you didn't know. It was like literally people from around the world. Yeah. In Iran, but also just Persians around the world. Well, we can totally mention it. It was for Supernatural, which was hands down one of the best crews I have ever worked with. And the cast was amazing. It just goes to show like you were on one episode, but it reached people in such a huge way and they were so happy to see their own and that's also why it's so sad that like casting directors or whatever look at you like you said and they go like you're not middle eastern enough you don't quite fit the bill because here you were and they were so excited like it was so sweet to see they were like so proud of you i was so humbled I was so humbled. I couldn't believe it. I was so thrilled. Mm -hmm. It was just amazing to kind of just like see people be so excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really cool. It was so unexpected. Holy moly. That was like overnight. Yeah, you were like, I was not thinking (laughs) this is what was going to happen. Yeah, it was awesome. So you not only deal with trouble in the industry because of like race and not looking enough like one or too much like the other, but also like sexuality 
you were saying because I know that like when we talked about it well, in the in the when we were working on the web series and you were still at that time like also auditioning for roles and stuff like that's something that I didn't know about you. Mm-hmm. Um, we had talked about the like aspect of being a woman of color, woman of color looking for roles, but I had we had never had the discussion about how sexuality came into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what's that been like? It's really interesting, you know, being a queer person and navigating the stereotypes of these queer conceptions within breakdowns, you know, a lot of hypersexualization of queer characters, oftentimes making them kind of deviant and, you know, just in the connotations, not that necessarily like these sexualities are inherently deviant, but just the connotations around these sexualities. Like oftentimes pansexual characters were, you know, Uh, portrayed as promiscuous and polyamorous and deviant when it's like they're pansexual they like everyone like you don't need to create this thing where it's just like you know has like a boyfriend but is pansexual and like cheats on them with like this girl and then embarks on this like sexual journey of like you know it's just not it's damaging it's damaging to these communities and and Mm -hmm. yeah through media too we see like yeah you're having visibility but at what damage that community too like right um you have laverne cox their new documentary touches on how damaging trans depictions have been in you know media and i think it's really important it's like don't tell a story but tell your idea of the story who are you representing and showcasing and get it fact-checked get it checked by people who belong to this community and you know how does it actually resonate with them you know how what is the potential consequences of the way you're portraying these people you know for the real communities that are going to be affected by this well that's exactly why it comes back again to having more diversity behind the camera when it comes to writers and producers and directors and again this isn't to say that like if you're white or if you're male or if you're cis or straight, like you shouldn't write or create what you want to create. That's not the point. But the point is that we need to amplify the voices of people of color and people in the LGBTQ community and just like all of that, because if they're also getting to tell their own stories, then you know it's more real and authentic. And it's not like just someone trying to like try something new and they're like, I'm going to try, you know, making this a little bit more zesty and adding in a gay character and what I think being gay is. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's why it's like, you, we need to see those stories by those people. We want to, we want to see those experiences and those stories told, but it means so much more when it's coming by people who actually know what it means and not someone who's trying to like, you know, pretend. And like, I know the whole point of acting and writing is to tell stories of different kind of people. It's not to say that you should never write about something you haven't personally experienced. No, please include everyone in your stories. Yeah, yeah. That's not like, that's not my point. I'm not saying that like, if you're a white man first, that you shouldn't write anymore. And that if you do, you should only write about white men. That's not my point, but my point please is don't this write is only about white men. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> We're so tired of it. <laughs> but my my point is that this is why we need to have more voices so that we can actually see those stories by those voices. Yes, please. You know? Like it's not just about diversity. It's like, yes, invite them to the table, but don't have them sit behind you. Mm-hmm. Invite them to the table and ask them what their perspective is. Mm-hmm. Invite them into the conversation. It's about inclusivity. It's about equity, Mm -hmm. giving them 
as we say, amplifying their voice because you already have that privilege of not needing a megaphone for your voice. Mm -hmm. So pass the mic, you know, let these people be contributing to these conversations as equals, not just an afterthought, Mm -hmm. not just tokenism. And then, yeah, and if you are someone who is who is straight or cis really wanting to write your thing, and this doesn't mean to discourage you and to say, like, you can't do it anymore, like, it's not your time anymore, that's not my point. But, like, if you are wanting to tell a story about, like, a character that you don't necessarily identify with, then do the research. See if you know someone who, like, if you do have a friend who's POC or who might be queer or something, like, talk to them and see what those experiences are actually like or do the research, read books. Do you know what I mean? Like, don't just Mm. write what you think that experience would be based on, like, what your, you know, like, your straight gazes or whatever you're like I think that a queer person experiences life like this I'm gonna just write it as if it were true (laughs) without actually talking be prepared for questions Mm -hmm. be prepared for lots of questions and you will come under scrutiny because these stories if you're talking about like all these representative stories and you're saying that you're representing these communities hello people are gonna have questions and people are gonna want to make sure that it's right because Mm -hmm. people are directly invested in your representation of these stories and it does matter and be kind because you're a guest telling mm-hmm. a story. You're not of that mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. All of this just makes me want to like write more. Like I obviously already do and I have for a very long time. But it's just like the more and more I'm like watching film and television, like looking for the thing that I want to see and going like, ah, oh, like another thing about white men or even if it's about women, it's usually white women. And it's like, and I I can like it too. I can enjoy it. I'm not saying I don't enjoy them, but like, I feel like something's missing and I'm like, it could be even more. I wish I could see myself represented. The more and more I'm experiencing that feeling, like that yearning and like that desire, I'm thinking like, okay, then I need to do it myself because I can't wait around forever for someone else to do it. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Goes yeah. for you, goes for everyone. If you feel that urge to tell representative stories or just have your voice heard and share your perspective, please do it. Mm-hmm. We need it. We really do. You can do it. And it's going to be so exciting when you accomplish, even just finish writing the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. And like, yes, it does suck because as you lose this ignorance and you see more and more the way the world works and you see more and more the way that's interpreted then in media you will lose your enjoyment for a lot of the content that you used to Mm -hmm. think was amazing and yeah I'm sick and tired of seeing predominantly white shows that then all of their characters that people go no it's quite a diverse show they have a lot of like you know BIPOC characters like oh wait no they all are reduced to the undesirable characters Mm -hmm. they all have a flaw that makes this character undesirable to the lead pay attention Mm -hmm. there is colorism there is colorism going on there is racism going on not necessarily saying the writer is racist again it's just that they have these internalized biases these prejudices these ways of looking that is often referred to the white gaze that informs them to make certain decisions or statements or portrayals of someone that is very damaging Mm -hmm. to that community yeah it's just like whitewashing stories and like we said already like when you do see BIPOC characters they're either stereotypes or they're bit parts or depending on the genre they're the villains like that's so often what happens is when there is like there's almost never Middle Eastern portrayal in film and television. And when there is, they're oh, terrorists. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's like the only time. It's like the men are terrorists and the women are super submissive, 
um, women who have no voice and, you know what I mean? Like, it's like all that same shit. And it's like, that's not all we are. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And like, that's if we're even on the screen, yeah. you know? No, for sure. I've had to navigate a lot of scripts that portrayed Middle Easterners as terrorists. And I said no to all of them. I've, I've made a lot of decisions that were based on my ethics and morals and the way I wanted to see things represented in the world that maybe have not had my career move as fast as ideally I would like it, but I am very happy that I made those decisions because they have direct consequences for people in my life and outside of my life who are part of that community. Like I, you know, you have to kind of just learn when to say no to make the world a better place even if it doesn't mean it even if it means handing in your fast track ticket to wherever you want to go exactly and like maybe not even a fast track ticket but just like you know having like money at the end of the day you need money to survive and if this is the job that you're doing and like yeah the career you're choosing like you hope to fucking make money out of it but then you're like at what cost right like i don't want to perpetuate the idea that this is what all middle eastern people are or what all asian people are like is it worth the x amount you know like the paycheck that i'm gonna get that i'm adding to that and not even just you know when it comes to race as well but like stories that like jeopardize you know women and like violence or queer people and violence like i was i booked a role in the first installment of a very popular Mm -hmm. film i remember this that went on to be a franchise and had serious consequences for the BDSM community, had very serious consequences for women and women who suffer from being in abusive relationships and, oh my God, a whole caveat mm-hmm. of problematics that is just like, how is there an audience for this? And I said no. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to think about, you know, like just how, like a lot of people go like, oh, what I do doesn't make a difference in the world. It really does. It does. Sometimes, yeah, maybe not to the whole world, but to your circle of friends or to your family or to one day Mm -hmm. your created family. And also, like, not to say on that note that, like, you shouldn't write or create stories that depict abuse or depict racism or sexism or whatever, because, like, at the end of the day, depending on the story you're trying to tell, those things do exist in real life. Mm -hmm. So not to say that like you want to yeah, don't fetishize some, it yeah like i'm not saying like write some sort of story where in the world that you're creating abuse doesn't exist and misogyny doesn't exist unless that is some sort of like utopia you're right utopia please yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah can i go there please um but it, it depends how you're doing it and how you're depicting it and like are you yeah are you condoning it are you creating a world yeah. where consent is blurred or doesn't exist, then it doesn't matter. And that has consequences for the people involved. Because, like, what is that expression? I always forget it. It's just, like, depiction. It's not I, – I don't remember the exact words, but it is, like, depicting is not condoning. Like, just because it is in your script or is in your show or whatever, that doesn't mean that you are encouraging that. You're showing that this exists and how you demonstrate it in, you know, your piece is what matters. Yeah. Because, like, for me personally, like, the type of stories that I like to write and also the stuff that I like to watch the most, like, though I do love to take in big, like, bigger movies, like, fantasy movies, sci-fi movies, whatever, like, all those bigger stuff. At the end of the day, my favorite type is slice of life film and TV, just things about everyday people and their lives, um, you know, hopefully ones that are done well. But like, that's what I like to see is people's like just real struggles and stuff. Cause I find those the most 
um, relatable. And then that's yeah, also absolutely. the type of, that's also the type of stuff that I like to write, you know? And then if you are writing those stories and watching them, then of course you're bound to write about like issues of like abuse or, you know, racism or whatever. It's just about like how you do it. Totally. Is, you want to give them a yeah. voice, don't want to pacify them and objectify their real situation. Yeah. And like in the movie, the franchise that you're talking about, it's the whole point of it is that it was done improperly and incorrectly. And it was yes. portrayed in a way that wasn't true. And then it affected millions of people's opinions of the BDSM community and like what they thought that meant because the way that it was depicted in the movie was incorrect. Yeah. And not true. And the, so yeah. like that's the point. It's not saying like don't include that stuff, but they they did it wrong. They fucked up. Yeah. That that yeah. There was a lot of problems and it a lot of uh psychological consequences too that were not properly dealt with with regards to the way sexuality was portrayed and it was coming from a very violent, misogynistic place. But yeah, let's not give them any more airtime. <laughs> yeah. Them you don't know who we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Just like the way you can do better is educate and support all these different communities that need their voices amplified through diversifying your content. It's amazing, like through what I would argue is a new wave of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of people that are now being more accountable and taking ownership for how they contribute to discourse, how they've contributed to inequality and equity um, to tokenism, you know, confronting their white fragility, holding themselves accountable, holding their peers, their family accountable. And I think it's fantastic, like doing this research, understanding these, you know, quite complex concepts that, you know, um, a lot of people don't have access to, whether because of a very poorly designed education system that needs overhauling because certain majors in universities are not holistic enough so that you get the exposure in university or college or post-secondary to learn about different subjects that are, you know, very, very important in terms of how history has been manipulated and groups have been affected. Well, also, the other thing with that, too, is so often even those things are just electives and they're electives in post-secondary, right? So it's yeah. like, unless you go to college or university, which some people can't and don't. Totally. And then unless you happen to pick that, you won't know when it should be like general education at a younger age. Yep. And then usually when it is elected, an elective, the people who choose it are people who already identify with that. So though it is good for people to know more about like their culture and identity, it's like it's everyone else that also needs to learn, you know, so that's why. But it's also super, yeah, elitist, as you were saying, mm -hmm. right? So people will look down at these electives. Like I remember my major was sociology and I had so many people scoffing at me and like people in business, political science, international relations being like Ugh, sociology, like what are you even going to learn in that? Well, it turns out a whole hell of a lot more than you mm -hmm. like, exactly. about the way this real world is, right? And so I encourage you to like diversify and like, yeah, not like you don't need a university education to be knowledgeable in any of these areas. And I really encourage you not to let the elitism of post-secondary education inhibit you from feeling like you have a voice or access to educational resources. Seek out BIPOC writers, scholars, you can Google them. A lot of papers are online. 
seek out your friends who are in post-secondary and use the hell out of their library access, mm-hmm. you know, and seek out all this information that can help you learn about a lot of what's lacking in what should be taught in elementary school and high school that should be included in their curriculums. Yep. 100%. You know, and, and then have fun too. diversify your content through the things that you listen to, such as your songs, yeah, sorry, your music, you know, all the different singers that we have to choose from the TV shows that you watch, you know, movies, obviously, like, if you were one of the people that was like, oh, is that a, just like a vote with my ticket and didn't watch that movie just because it didn't have a white all white cast, go watch it. Have some fun, even if it's a rom com or whatever it is. It's amazing how much you can learn when you open yourself up to like learning in different places. And like how much you can kind of get to know about the barriers that you wouldn't have thought people from other communities encounter when they're non-white. So I really encourage people to like, you know, whether it comes with music or whatever, to really educate yourself and support a lot of people who don't get the kind of same exposure. It's just so interesting too that like nowadays so often white people or whatever will consider it pandering because they're like, oh, there goes another movie with a gay character or like there's more black people or like, oh my God, like the whole cast is women. Like, and it's like they consider that pandering whereas like, since the dawn of you know cinematic history it's all been like about straight people and white people and mostly movies like entire movies that only have men and then if there is a woman in it it's like you know like so often not a good representation and yet like that's fine but you flip it and suddenly it's considered pandering when it's like did you not consider that those people also just exist like people of color and queer people and stuff don't exist in real life as pandering. They exist because they are there. So the fact that like their existence in media to you could just mean like, oh, you put it in to like, you know, tick off a box when it's like, do you not think, do you not see them in real life? Do you not know these people are out there and they exist? Like (laughs) when you see like, when you see like a Middle Eastern person at the checkout line of the grocery store, do you go like, oh, that's pandering? (laughs) No, but it is weird because they're they're there are these weird insulated nuclear bubbles where it is just a homogenous society. Mm-hmm. And then it gets reaffirmed in content that is grossly heteronormative and homogenous where it's only white people and the erasure of queer people and mm-hmm. interracial couples. It goes hand in hand and it's like you have to change somewhere. So it's like there are weird communities where like I'll walk around, I'm the only person of color and then hello, I'm the only gay person of color. Like, And it's terrifying. You know, like it is, it's really scary because to be, again, that like faced with the fact that you are such an other so starkly, Mm -hmm. like there's, it's really weird. Like that's why suburbias were created, Mm -hmm. right? To keep out the undesirables who were BIPOC and to have these nuclear, white, homogenous, often heteronormative or- Where they could feel, quote, safe. (laughs) Yeah. Like I think it needs to change where it's like a lot of the discourses that I've had with my white peers who, you know, they go, Oh, well, I had no idea. Like, it's because like my whole friend group, like I didn't like, I knew that like certain queer people were facing like issues, but like, I really didn't know because my whole like friend group are all straight and they're like all white. And it's like, okay, well, how can you change that? Mm -hmm. How can you like change that then? What, like, what's wrong with you then? That if you're only yeah, like, surrounding why yourself. why is that? Like, why did you gravitate? And, like, right? I know people like to gravitate towards, I guess, unfortunately, I guess just being human, like, gravitating towards people who look more like themselves. But especially when you are, like, if you are white 
like that is something to look into because like if your entire life and your existence has been mostly surrounded by white people you must also think of like how much you're lacking and like all you know like there's so much to learn about other cultures and there's so much you can benefit from them and like don't you want that like um and i'm not saying like i guess it's weird because i'm not expecting you just like you know walk up to a person of color on the street who doesn't know (laughs) you and you're just like hey be be my my friend friend. (laughs) yeah like I need a black person to be my friend. Will you be that yes, person? Please don't tokenize. Don't do that. The they will one hundred percent reject yeah. you, and then you're gonna come yeah. out and be like, "They were reverse racist to me." And it's like, no, because who the fuck? Are you? <laughs> I'm not saying do that. Yeah, it's just like you have to see how that can be like beneficial, and like just like examine why that is that that's always who you've been surrounded by, and yeah. think about what you could be lacking. And because it's not good to just go and like immediately just walk up to someone on the street and demand that they give you friendship because you're entitled to it. Yeah. But just think about like, well, like, you know, you can start off by like taking in that kind of like in media, like film, television, music, like listen to music by people of color. Something maybe you haven't done before or watch movies and TV shows that maybe you thought was pandering, but like actually watch and like take in those people's stories And then also just look at yourself and think, like, why is it that, like, even at work, maybe, why am I not gravitating towards those people, you know? Like, because that's not someone on the street. Like, why are you not wanting to make those connections? Yeah, I feel like it's been, like, everything we've talked about relies on what we've all, like, really need to do and have been forced to do through this time is Mm self-reflection. And, you know, self-reflecting internal biases do I have Mm -hmm. that I'm not even aware of like okay I'm suddenly realizing my group of friends are all white all straight Mm -hmm. I didn't intentionally Mm -hmm. do that or did you but not saying that you're racist but it's like what are these informed bias misinformed biases that makes you feel like you can't connect with someone who is Mm -hmm. not white because it's the same thing as producers and stuff right going like we can't have a tv show or a movie that has more than one black character because then white people won't relate to it or connect to it like that's the same thing it's the exact same thing as then in person thinking oh i'm not going to be able to connect to that person because it's consistently reinforced every day in what we see around us where it's like everything has to be you know for white people and like prioritizing their comfort. Absolutely. So I just think it's like, it all comes around and like, that's why again, like I just think it's so important to have that representation so that the more everyone, so like for people of color and you know, all those communities, it's so important to see yourself on screen and see yourself represented. Obviously it feels so amazing to see someone who like looks like me or sounds like me or has a similar experience to me, but it's not even just for us seeing ourselves. It's also so white people see more people of color Mm -hmm. you know like it's so straight people see more queer people and like because then it can get away from it just being like like a character can be queer and their story doesn't have to just revolve around the fact that they're queer they're just also a person do you know what I mean like that's what it also (laughs) like it's like you need to yeah it needs to be brought up because at the end of the day it's still their identity but like it's not their whole story and their personality and their identity isn't just that yeah and until we see that more it gets like on screen and in stories, like in books and stuff. Other people will also see people that way. You know, like white people will also always see black people or brown people that way. And then straight people will always have like a stereotypical idea about queer people because that's the only way they're even shown, if so. And then if they're not, then all you have is like your misconceptions. Absolutely. Like 
just because someone's Asian doesn't mean then you have to now tell an Asian quote-unquote story like that's like center them Mm -hmm. and have them be represented as an Asian person but center them within very slice of life content like you were talking about Mm -hmm. like real situations where you know like you're opening up this kind of white gaze of what it means to be Asian as in just like this immigrant story and just like this or this or this it's like no these are still like what you had talked about your ideas of what it means Mm -hmm. to be Asian but that's why it is also important it's like is that story being told by an Asian person yeah because there is a lot of beauty and a lot to be gained from seeing the story from the point of view of an immigrant and what that means. Absolutely. But like, it's like, is it actually coming from someone who knows what that means? Or is it like a white person writing what they think being an immigrant means? Because <laughs> yeah. no one wants to see that. Exactly. And we live in a globalized world. So, you know, let that globalized world kind of reflect within your storytelling hubs and like how you're making your films. And like, you know, like I, I, I talked about this previously but it's like if you created content that was reflective of the world we actually live in and told diverse stories Mm -hmm. you may lose a few viewers but you are also reshaping the way your viewers see the world Mm -hmm. and subsequently the people around them you're positively impacting the way people see themselves you know and that's how the storytelling process works it's a tool you know you've gotten to amplify your own like heteronormative white kind of homogenous storytelling now amplify the stories of the actual world and the people Mm -hmm. that are in it give them representation so that you know when people what they see on screen actually is reflective of the world that they live in stop keeping them in these weird nuclear bubbles that are homogenous and heteronormative and you know like pandering constant fear of otherness because everything that they're ingesting is like fake but it's all yeah and it's also interesting because at the beginning you said you might lose a few viewers i'm like i don't even think you would like why would you like you're gonna gain so many more people who are you're gonna gain so many more you're gonna gain people who are like finally something for me about me like and like i feel like the only people you'd lose are the ones who i guess don't want to see that but then like fuck them like why would you not want to see that and if you don't want to see that don't worry you have a hundred plus years of (laughs) Yeah. Of stuff yeah. you can watch that doesn't look like that. You're fine. You're going to lose some losers. I don't really think that matters that much. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, those people also need to fucking wake up and realize that that's what the world looks like. And they can't just like, you know, go around and live with their blinders on, like in denial that that's what it looks like. Like if they're getting so deeply offended yeah. and upset when they see something that is like reflective of what the world looks like, then that's says a lot more about them you know like yeah we just kind of have to change it we just have to we can't wait around for them to get it and give us permission yeah we just have to be like we're gonna make the stuff that shows what the world is actually like and the more and more that that exists out in the world the more it'll be normalized and people will realize that our stories and our lives matter just as much 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah (laughs) yeah <laughs> well, that was a really, really good chat. Yeah, that was amazing. I feel like I learned a lot and, you know, it was really fun just kind of chatting about stuff that, you know, really matters. And yeah, it was really cool. Thanks for the platform. And I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad you could come on. I, I think I just texted you like two days ago being like, do you want to come on? You're like, yeah, what about this Friday? Like yeah. it just worked out <laughs> so well. I'm like, oh, that was easy. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. <laughs>